I want to uh, draw your attention to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And uh, we'll go to Exodus chapter 32. If, if you have your Bibles, um, I would advise you to bring them and, and to follow along or get your phone app out or whatever it is that you, wherever you have your Bible. And we'll begin our reading with verse 7. We do try to put the scripture up on the screen for you to follow along. Exodus chapter 32, beginning with verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. And then I'll make you into a great nation. We're going all the way down to verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. Now, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of and my angel will go before you. However, when a time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because they did, of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. I'm done. Have you ever said those words? Have you ever sensed that in regards to somebody else? Have you ever just kind of said, look, I'm done. I'm finished. I'm done trying, done talking, done being patient, done helping. I'm just done. It's pretty close to what God said to Moses in our passage of scripture here this morning about the Israelites. I want to remind you the background on this. I'll make it a very brief Reader's Digest version of this. I won't uh, draw this out because many of you are familiar with this story. This is the story of the Israelites. These were people uh, about a million strong. I'll start there. They were a nation that were captive by the Egyptian people. And the Egyptians made them slaves. And the Egyptians made them work. They built cities for the Egyptians. They built houses for the Egyptians that they never got to live in. They had to make their own bricks out of straw and mud. They worked very, very hard. Many of them died doing the labor For the Egyptians that they did. They worked and they worked and they worked. And they were subjugated for year after year. And the Israelites began to call out to God. And say God deliver us from this place. Get us out of here. We're slaves. We're being treated just in terrible ways. We're like property to these people. And we need to get out. We're like livestock. And they called out to God. And God raised up a leader by the name of Moses. And through Moses... God delivered the people in a miraculous way. There were ten plagues that God visited. They were miraculously done upon the Egyptians to show himself to be God. And many of you will remember the line that the Lord gave to Moses to give to the ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh. Let my people go. 
And over and over, Pharaoh would hear this. Let my people go. Let them go out to the desert to worship me. Let them alone. Let my people go. And finally, after the worst plague that took all of the firstborn, all of the firstborn of the children, all of the firstborn of the livestock, all of it was taken away from the Egyptians. After that, and that was the worst of them, but there were terrible plagues that were visited on these Egyptians. Finally, the the Egyptian ruler, the Pharaoh, basically drove the Israelites out in the evening, out at nighttime, and said, go away, just go away. The whole land was in grief, and the Lord miraculously provided for the Israelites. They were able to plunder the Egyptians because God made their minds favorable to whatever they were asked. So they took silver and gold, tons of it with them, and they went out to the desert, and God had led them. Step by step, miraculously, in many ways, and provided for these Israelites all that they needed. And he gave Moses the, the, the authority and the direction to lead these people. God miraculously went along with this million strong nation. He literally had a cloud that would lead them and look like a pillar. And it would physically lead them through the land that they were going. God had promised that they would possess a beautiful, powerful, awesome land of the, of, uh, that, that God had prepared for them. It would be an incredible place for them to live. And the Lord was literally leading them at, and during the daytime by a, a cloud like a pillar. That's what it was described as. And at nighttime, it would be ablaze. And so it was a pillar of fire and it was for protection. It was for guidance and they were being cared for by the Lord. They finally get to the mountain and I preached about this not too very long ago. They were camped in the desert of sin before Mount Sinai and God said to Moses, I'm going to appear. And the people are going to hear me me speak. I'm going to appear on this mountain. Don't let anybody come because I'm a holy God. Don't let them come close to the mountain, but I'm going to speak and they're going to hear me. And it was an incredible morning. Again, I'm going to give you Reader's Digest. They're they're asleep in their tents. God had told them to get ready. They have three days that they consecrate themselves. They're asleep in their tents and they're awakened by the trumpet blast of the Lord. Let me tell you, one day that trumpet's going to blast again, folks, and we're all going to hear it. Let me tell you, it's going to be a day. And that trumpet blast became louder and louder and louder. And as God's presence came down upon the mountain. So powerful is the presence of God. This is not God showing off. This is God showing up. God touched that mountain. The mountain began to quake and shake on the horizon. Lightning and thunders going off. And they're awakened by all this sound. They, they come out of their tents. And there the mountain looks like it's on fire. It looks like smoke pouring up from the furnace. Because God had to cover his glory with a thick, dark cloud. And that's what it looked like came in fire and in power. And when the Lord spoke, the the Israelites became so afraid and terrified by what they were experiencing. By the way, the trumpet blast the whole time was getting louder and louder and louder. It was an intense experience for them. There's no question who was on that mountain. And you can hear me say that. There's no question that the God of heaven and earth, the one who created it all, was up there. And so when the Lord began to speak, the people were terrified by the power and the, the, I'll use the word, awesomeness of this God that showed up on Mount Sinai. 
And so God called Moses up and even Moses, this man who had this relationship with God that was so incredible. Even Moses, when he went up there, trembled in the presence of Almighty God. And the Lord began to speak to Moses. And while he is up there speaking to Moses and the people, by the way, had said to Moses, listen, you go talk to God and tell God to stop talking because we're terrified. You let him tell you what to say and we'll, we'll hear it from you. We're too afraid to even hear him. He is up there on the mountain. It is during that time that the Lord gives him stone tablets. And he writes his Ten Commandments that we're so familiar with. God himself, the finger of God, writes these commandments. And he has them in Moses' hand. As Moses is up there on that mountain, he's up there for a period of time. The Israelites did an incredible thing. They forgot God. And I don't understand this. I'm just being truthful with you. I don't get this. Okay? I, they were just days before terrified. There was no question who was on that mountain. And they forgot him. And they began to look around and they said, well, we need a God to worship. This blows my circuitry. But I'm just saying what they said. And they began to look around and say, we need a God to worship. And they took the very gold and silver and precious stuff that, that God had provided for them. And they melted it down, all the gold, and they made a, a golden calf. They had Aaron do it. Aaron, the priest of God. I don't get this. And Aaron does this thing because he fears for his life. He's afraid they're going to kill him if he does. And he casts this, this calf. And they set it up and they said, there's your gods. This is what led you from Egypt. This is what freed you. This is your God. Bow to this idol. But they called it their God. I don't know what name they gave it, but they called it their God. They were worshiping at the foot of the mountain of God. They were worshiping a golden image that they had created. So now we're back. To Exodus 32, and God looked down at them and he looked at their hearts. Here's something that we all need to understand. I can sit here this morning and I probably could fool a lot of you. I'm not trying to be facetious. I think we all have this power. And I can put on a facade and most of you would think a certain thing and it might not be true of me at all. I could be looking out at you and saying, you know, I think that person has a noble heart. But here's the thing about the way God looks at us. He looks past all this facade, doesn't he? And he knows the truth. God looked into the heart of these people and he said, they're stiff-necked, they're stubborn. And they're going to rebel against me. They just did. And they're going to keep being like this. And here's what he said. I'm done. And here, this is a scary thing. When God gets here, and by the way, this is just a little side note about this is not my main point of message. It's a scary thing to know that that it is possible to bring the living God to a point where he is done. When he's just done. That's scary. And that's what he said. He says to Moses, Moses, while you were up here worshiping me and getting from me the very commands that was going to guide these people. That you, and, and there's an interesting wording that you brought out of Egypt. Your people, your, your kin. God was so disgusted, he stopped calling them his people. And then he says to him, he says, you know what? I want you to leave my presence. And I'm going to let my anger smolder. And I'm going to break out and I'm going to kill all of these people. Now, we don't like to think of a God like that, do we? We don't like to think that God could do such a thing. But that's, those are the words. You can read them in Scripture. 
He says, leave me now because I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill them. And Moses, I'm going to make a great nation come out out of you. Moses goes down and we know some of this story of how when he comes down off of the mountain, he sees exactly what God has been saying. He's so distraught. He takes these sacred stones, these tablets, and he just breaks them in pieces. Why? To represent what these people had just done. Smashes them on the ground, obliterates them all. They don't even get to read them. And then he speaks to the people and he says, you've committed a great sin. And we read this in verse 30 and on where Moses, because he's a man who loves people, says, I'm going to go back up and talk to God. And I'm going to see if I can, if God will atone you for your sins. What you've done is very wicked. But I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to go in or see. I'm going back to God for you. This is also not the main crust of my sermon. I'll, I'll move very quickly. But let me tell you something. Don't you think that intercessory prayers don't make a difference for somebody? You'll see the difference in just a second. Moses goes back up before the Lord and he confesses for the people. He says, look, Lord, I know. We've done a terrible thing. And he's speaking to the Lord in verse 31. And and you can see this in verses 30 through 32. I'm just getting to 31. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They made themselves God of gold. But now please forgive their sins. Look at this. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. May I ask you something, my friends? Have you ever met a pastor who would say, to God what Moses said that day. If you won't forgive my congregation, Lord, if you destroy them as you said that you're about to, then blot my name out of your book and take me with them. What kind of man does that? What kind of man says that to the living God? A man who truly loves others as much as he loves himself. A man who is not your typical man. Something had happened to Moses to make him that way. Something on the inside, because I guarantee you, he did not start out with that kind of heart. That's not how he was born. We're going through the book that um, I've, uh, that's titled Soul Shift, and I've been mentioning this to you, written by Steve Deneff and D David Drury. For the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at this book and considering some of its content. I, again, my messages are our companion to this. This book is a good read. It costs $12. That's a cheesesteak and a Coke. Uh, and, and that's about all it's going to cost you. If you can't, you can get it on Amazon.com. You can get it at WesleyPress.com. If you can't afford $12, please come to me if you want a book. I will help you. eBay has them cheaper. I know... Uh, uh, Jamie has been telling us that too and has put that on Facebook. You can get them for about five bucks on eBay roughly. So so there are places you can get them. But if you can't get a book or you, or for some people that that's still just too much money, come see me if you want a copy of the book and we'll make sure you get one one way or the other. But I want to ask you to have that because this book covers uh, to me something that's important. I'm very interested as a pastor for the, in the... I'm very interested that the Christians of our church grow in the Lord. 
that matters to me a great deal. And every once in a while, as pastor, I'll recommend a book, and we'll sort of look at it together as a congregation. I don't do it much, but every once in a while, we'll do this. And this book, to me, is worth the read, and it's worth your investment. As a church, we're going to consider seven transformative shifts in the very soul that are covered in this book that we were looking at. We're doing so because I share the belief with the authors of this book that meaningful changes happen in people in the depths of our soul. Changes that stick are a soul shift. My friends, this kind of shift, this kind of transformation doesn't occur only by the force of one's will or the force of one's mind alone. This kind of shift doesn't even happen because a person works on themselves to make a better version of themselves. This kind of shift comes through a cooperative work between God, the Father, God, the Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, and and an individual. This kind of shift is a soul shift. And I really want to challenge you to consider these two questions. Is there anything in my life that if God had his way, he would like to change? In Judgment Day, honesty, is there anything about me that if God could have his way with me, he wants to change? If the answer is yes, and it is yes for me, then the next question is, am I willing to let God work with me to change it? Am I willing to do it? The Bible stresses the concept that God's people are to be very different from the rest of the world. Hebrews eleven thirteen talks about God's people being strangers here on earth, aliens in this world. What I'm saying is that it is God's expectation that his children are fundamentally different than the rest of the people who live on earth. We should live differently than the rest of the world lives. We should think differently than the rest of the world thinks. We should react to people differently and speak differently than the rest of the world speaks and reacts because God didn't save you. If you are a Christian today, you have made a decision at some point in your life and you have acted on that decision that you want Jesus Christ to be your Lord, your Savior, to have control of your life. If you have made that that choice, I promise you that when Jesus came into your heart and forgave your sins and washed you and, and, and adopted you into the family of God, when that happened, he did it not For the purpose of just keeping you out of hell. He did it to transform you from the soul. From the inside out like we just sang. Soul shifts are his goal in our lives. He wants us to transform. He wants to take us from the inside out. And make us fundamentally different than we were before we knew Jesus Christ. Let me share a quote from the book, if you don't mind, just a couple of things. And this is this is one of the quotes here. We may want to be different, but we also want to quit when it's difficult to be different. We want to be different, but we don't want to change. Translation, soul shifts are not easy. They're not automatic. Because of that, many Christians resist them. And I want to say that if it matters to you to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to experience real transformation at your very core, then you will seek out soul shifts. You will seek them out because that's what it takes. And the first major shift that this these authors um, cover in our book is called me to you. It's what they call me to you. Me to you 
is a shift from being basically self-aware, self-centered, self-oriented to becoming others-oriented and others-aware. Let me share just a short excerpt that is in this book. And this is a great example of what I'm talking about. The only time I'll read from it. So forgive me for doing this. But it's just a short excerpt. Many years ago when the members of the Salvation Army gathered for a conference, they were saddened to learn that their founder, William Booth, was too sick to come. Booth was expected to deliver the keynote address to the conference, but was unable to travel. Instead, he asked if he could write his speech and have it read for him at the conference. The night came and the crowd gathered to hear their reverend founder's speech read to them. They expected his words to explain many things to inspire them and to give them a rationale for all of their service. Instead, Booth was able to fit his entire speech into one telegram message. It represented the focus of the movement's work. When the telegram was read to the crowd, it contained one word, others. And that is what it's all about for those who have been moved from me to you. The heart of the shifted soul is now broken for the needs of others and not for the self. The eyes of the shifted soul are constantly looking to the needs of others and not to the self. What's me to you about? In one word, others. William Booth made this shift in his heart. He became a man who was unique among the rest of the world and worldly men from his core, from his soul. His mind automatically went to the needs of others Before he thought of himself. I want to talk a little bit about this. And just just three quick observations about this shift. And uh, I'll share it with you. I want to talk first about about where we all started. Where we started. Moses the Apostle Paul. Peter. William Booth. John Wesley. And several others. All of these people made the shift from me to you. None of them started that way though. They started the same way we started. The same way you started. They were born with the same nature as I was born with. Self-oriented, self-preserving, self-serving, and self-loving. That's what I was born with. Let me assure you that Moses was just as selfish at birth as you were. And as I was when we were born. He was born with the same self-preservation and promotion and self-serving nature as any of us were born with. But by the time we get to the point where we read about in the scripture, something has shifted in his soul. And now it was me to you. He thought of others before he thought of himself. He was not the same person that had been born. I have relayed to you before a few stories about my experience as a dad. And I just want to kind of back down, uh, back, go back in time a little bit and just talk to you about my first son. I still remember when Darlene and I, we weren't married very long before surprise, she was expecting a child. And so it was a little bit of a surprise to us. But to be very honest with you, we had no money or anything, but we were delighted. We were excited. I loved my wife very, very much. And and it was just a wondrous thing to me as I still remember the day that she came to me and said, hey, Ken, um, guess what? I said, I have no idea what she says. I'm pregnant. And I stuttered. 
I didn't know what to say to her. And then finally I gave her a big old hug and a kiss. I said, baby, that's wonderful. And then it dawned on me. I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a dad. I was 21 years old. What in the world? You know, I, I didn't understand anything. I'm just telling you now. It's amazing that my son's alive today because I didn't know. I didn't know anything about being a dad. And, and I still remember the whole process of, of, that, of him being formed in my wife's body. And I remember the changes that were going on and, and being in awe. Of the things that were happening. I still remember when the baby kicked. And my wife said here feel feel. And you know that whole thing that husbands get to experience. And 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 I was all at once accelerated. Excited. I was I was looking at this in a, in a sense of amazement. That this was happening. And then I was scared. I was so afraid. Thinking I'm going to break it. What, that thing inside of her. I'm going to bust it in pieces. I'm, I'm clumsy. Something bad's going to happen to you. Oh, I'm so sorry, little boy. You're a little girl. I didn't know. But I remember just, it just kept coming back. I, in my sleep, going to sleep at night, I would lay there thinking, I'm going to be a dad. In five more months, in four more, in two, three, you know, all these things. I'm thinking, I'm going to be a dad. And then, of course, the, the, the time when Darlene went to the hospital and, and, and she delivered our son 20-some hours, 22 or 3 hours of hard labor she went through. And I remember standing there saying to her, oh, I'm so sorry I did this to you. I'll never do it again. I, I did. I just felt so bad. There was nothing I could do but stand there as she grinned and, you know, dealt with the pain and squeezed my hand hard enough to make me realize, hey, this must hurt a lot because, ow, you know, I just, and she would grab me and like pull the, you know, the, the, the gown thing that I was wearing. It was an intense thing. I was present when he was born. And I can still remember seeing that child for the very first time. And it takes babies a little while to get cute. I'm just saying, okay. <laughs> Thank God for the nurses who swoop in and clean and all that kind of stuff. But I remember holding my son for the very first time and thinking, somehow by God's miracle, I am this child's father. And I'm looking down into that face and it's, per- my, my thinking, perfectly formed. And those fingers and those toes and the voice and... His little eyes and his ears, and it's all working. And I marveled that this this baby was just inside of my wife. And I marveled at my wife. I looked at her and said, how did you do that? But let me tell you something. If it were up to men to have babies, there would have been one, one. And, and, and that man would have said, don't do this. It's awful. And there'd be no more. You wouldn't be here, okay? So it is amazing to me what my wife did. I mean, just the, the process of it all. And I just remember thinking, how does she even do this? How, how does she find the strength? And so I marveled at this whole thing. And I remember the day when we took Ty, uh, Chris home. And, you know, I was scared, man. I, I was thinking, man, I'm going to go pick up my baby from the hospital, we're going to bring him home. And again, can I remind you, I knew this much, zero, nothing about being a dad. I was clueless about what you do with these things. And so I remember thinking, he's perfect. I don't know about anybody else's child, but God really worked hard on this one. 
This one's amazing, you know. To me, it was the greatest human being that was ever brought into this world at that moment. That's how I felt. I, it was way back, and you're going to laugh at this. It was way back when CBs were popular. I gave myself a handle. I was proud papa. You know, that was me. Break one nine, you got the one proud papa. You know, that was me. And so, so I remember just thinking everything about this child is perfect. That went away really fast. Because, you know, hey, the first night home, you're excited, you're glad. And even the first time he woke us up in the middle of the night, oh, isn't he so cute? He's so adorable. Oh, he's crying. He's hungry, you know. And look at him meat. Look at that. And all the things that are first with babies. And you're just thinking, this is an incredible experience. I am so lucky. Yeah. You know, and so I was, that lasted about a day or two. Because what I discovered about my perfect little son, I was thinking, what a beautiful child. Look, look, he smiled. It was probably gas, but it looked like a smile. You know, and I'm just thinking, he's just perfect. He's, he's wonderful. And then I began to see the signs of his selfishness. And you know, that little booger did not care how tired we were. Every hour, on the hour, he was waking us up. And it didn't matter to him how, how tired I was, how sleep-deprived I was. He would scream. And here's the thing. There's a nastiness to a baby's cry when they're upset, right? I want what I want. I want it now. Hurry up. There's no patience there. And all the world for, for Chris was all about Chris. It had to revolve around the baby. And I began to become resentful in my mind at his selfishness. And it's amazing to me as they grow up. I mean, think about children. What's one of the first things that they learn to say? One of his first words was, no. Come here, Chris. No. Sit down, Chris. No. And he learned no. And if I would want him to do something or take him somewhere, he didn't want. No. And I still remember years later when he was in church not acting so well. And he was old enough for this. Don't get mad at me, okay? I kept correcting him. I kept saying, Chris, you've got to be quiet. You've got to straighten out. Or daddy is going to take you to the bathroom and you don't want this. And no, no, no. Oh, no. He kept pushing it because he was selfish. He didn't care that I was the youth pastor of this church and that I was trying to keep him quiet while the pastor was preaching. He didn't care that I, it was embarrassing me a little bit that he was acting like Satan himself had entered into him that day. He didn't care. And so when I finally had enough and couldn't deal with him anymore, I picked him up and I started marching my way out to the door. And he began to scream at the top of his lungs, no, no, don't beat me. (laughs) Selfish little bird. Well, needless to say, when he came back in, he was doing this one. (laughs) I sat him down. I said, now be quiet. And he sat there for a few minutes and he, he started in again. And I'm going, are you kidding me? Would you just stop it? No. No, he didn't want to. The second time I picked him up and started to go out the door, he's screaming no again. Then he said, pray for me. <laughs> I kid you not. That's what he did. It may be a little bit cute when a child gets selfish, but it's not cute at all when a child of God is selfish. Friends, me to you. 
is a vital soul shift. Selfishness leads to all kinds of wrong thinking and sin. Listen to me. Churches split because of selfishness in Christians. I'm talking to Christians for a few minutes because of grudges. And grudges a lot of times are formed by selfishness. Marriages can be ruined through selfishness in Christian marriages. I've seen churches split over the just the dumbest things ever. And why? Because some people are being selfish. There's no me to you in this. It's me, me, my way, what I want. I've seen people leave churches over the silliest things. It is kind of sad. They'd be part of a church for a long, long time. And because something changed and they didn't like the change, it's up and leave. Now, let me say this to you. If something happens in a church that is, is not biblical, that in some way is her- like heresy and there's things like that. That's, that's, that's understandable. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about petty little things that don't matter in the kingdom of God. The things I have seen happen because of selfishness. they amazing to me. And that is our nature until we give ourselves over to God. Friends, the me to you shift is so vital. Marriages can be ruined because of selfishness. Please listen. There are Christians today who are sitting in jail. And I say Christians right now because of selfishness. I'm not overstating this. There are people who are in jail, and I know some of them, who previously opened their heart to the gospel, repented of their sins and turned to Christ. But because they were too selfish and were not willing to make a shift, they ended up doing something stupid and they got caught and they're in jail today. And they're there because that was their starting point. And can I just tell you, that's where you and I start. We start with these, these natures. And that's why it's a difficult journey to make this shift of me to you. But it is such a necessary one. I was a young man, youth pastor, about the time my son was born. And I was serving on a district of the Wesleyan Church. And I still remember... One minister that had to leave the ministry because he had never made the shift. When she could take it no more, this man's wife finally went to our district superintendent and revealed to him that he had been battering her and beating her up, a pastor of a church. And that's right. He was a cowardly wife beater. The poor lady took the district superintendent's wife into a bathroom and revealed all kinds of bruises and evidence that she had been beaten up by a pastor. People do these kinds of things after they come to Christ. And sometimes after they enter into ministry because they have not made a shift from me to you. Church, that's where we all start. We're selfish. We're born with a self-centered nature. We're too much about us. But let me move on and talk to you about where we are going when we make a me-to-you shift. We've already looked at the incredible statement that Moses said to God, to the Israelites. And I tell you, the Bible is full of examples of me-to-you shifts. We can see it in the book that you will read if you have it. You'll read about Ruth and Naomi. It's a beautiful story. I won't ruin it for you. Read that. You'll enjoy that story. 
going back to Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, another place where we see evidence that he had made this shift. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. But by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. This man learned to love the people that he was part of. I mentioned the Apostle Paul to you a little earlier. He too loved the Israelites. He said in Romans chapter 9, I, this, this moves me, verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish I could, I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Do you see what Paul is saying? If, if it would help, if it would change things for the Israelites, I'd be cursed. Because he had made a shift in his heart from me to you. He loved the people that, that he came from. And there are many people who have made this shift, not just biblical figures. I'm going to read to you um, a story that I found, and I thought this was really moving. On February the 3rd, 1943, the United States Army Transport Dorchester, a converted luxury liner, was crossing the North Atlantic Ocean, transporting 900 troops to an American base in Greenland. Aboard the ship were four chaplains of different faiths. Reverend George Fox, a Methodist, a Jewish rabbi, Alexander Good, Reverend Clark Poland, a Dutch Reformed minister, and Father John Washington, a Roman Catholic priest. Around 12.55 a.m., a German U-boat fired a torpedo that struck Dorchester's starboard side below the waterline near the engine room. The explosion instantly killed a hundred men and knocked out the power and communication with Dorchester's three escort, escort ships. And within 20 minutes, the transport sank and more than 670 men died there. As soldiers were rushed to the lifeboats, the four chaplains spread out, comforting the wounded and directing others to safety. And one survivor, Private William Bedner, Later said, I could hear men crying and pleading and praying. I could also hear the chaplains preaching courage. Their voices were the only thing that kept me going. Another survivor, John Ladd, watched as the chaplains distributed life jackets. And when they ran out, they each removed their own and gave them to four men. It was the finest thing I have seen or hope to see this side of heaven, John Ladd would say. As Dorchester sank. The chaplains were seen with their arms linked together, praying together. It is a shift from always seeking what's in it for me to how can I bless someone else or help somebody else. That's the shift that I'm talking about. It's the shift away from my comfort to yours first. It's a shift from what I want and what I desire to meeting somebody else's needs ahead. It always is so inspiring to me when I see people of our church who are living this out. And I do see it. I see uh, there's an attentiveness about our congregation to new people, especially when they come into our congregation. And I love, love watching those of you who will do just simple little things to make sure that somebody has a good experience when they come in here. 
And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, that's important. It's not easy to walk into a church and not be somebody who's a regular attender. It's much better when uh, people go out of their way to be friendly and accommodate you and help you and help you assimilate in. That makes a difference, and I've watched you do that. I thank you if you have ever parked off of our parking lot to make room for somebody else, and you parked and walked the ways in. I thank you for the things that you have done as a church. That's inspiring, and that's evidence of at least a shifting uh, that happens inside of people's heart. This shift to me, from, from me to you, is obeying the command of Jesus Christ to love others as you love yourself. It affects the way that you spend your money. It affects the way that you treat others, the way you speak to others, the way you view other people, and the way you think about the world. And it changes the way that you use your time. I'm not going to elaborate on this, but when we make this shift as a congregation, as we make this shift, as Christians we make this kind of shift, it helps us love people. It helps us realize that everybody has value. No matter who they are, what they believe, they have value. And that me to you is so important. I like this quote from the book. Do you want to know how much you love God? How much do you love the other in your life? How much do you give to the least, to the AIDS patient, to to the poor, the unemployed, the oppressed, the victim of a tragedy? to the citizen of whose nation is at war with us. Of course, the ultimate example of this me-to-you shift is Jesus Christ himself. And all that he did, he's God, and he left all of his glory, he came down, became one of us. And because of all that he did, everything Jesus did was for the world. And he did it all because he loves people more than he valued his own comfort. He didn't have to leave heaven. He didn't have to go from his glory to here. He did it because he loves us. And I love that. How are we going to get there? How will we get there? We spent some time talking about how people are taught to attempt behavioral changes. And we do that with our children, don't we? I had to teach my son a whole lot about being less selfish because he didn't want to share. That was when he was a little boy. Man, he hated to share. It was amazing to me. He would be playing. He had his own little stack of toys. He'd be playing and he'd be totally content. Another little child would walk up and see a toy that he wasn't touching. Go into his toy box or something. They pull that one out. Suddenly, he was very interested in that toy. And one of his, about the second word he learned was mine. And he'd go and grab it. Mine, mine. And he would wrestle over the toy. That's that selfishness. Now, I taught my son to share and I taught him how to behave in ways that seem less less selfish. And we've done the same, haven't we? I hope I hope that we've at least learned behaviors that look less selfish. But that's on the outside. God doesn't want to change us from the outside in. He wants to start on the inside, folks. And so we can appear to be something that we are not. I'm not talking about that. Behavior modification alone won't do this. If we want to make this shift from me to you, it needs to happen at our very core. It needs to go far beyond forced behavior and to our second nature. As this shift is made, this becomes second nature to us. We just become a person who thinks of others first. We just do. 
as the shift is made. And it becomes as natural as breathing. How does it happen? Begins with a desire to be who Christ wants you to be. Begins with an honest recognition that you're not there. I'm too selfish. I'm still too self-centered and self-serving. And it begins with a cry out to God to say, Lord, I want change in my life. Change in my core. And we ask God to change us at the core. Give God access to your heart. Ask him to change you. Begin to cry out to him. Ask him to break your heart for other people. To let you see the needs of other people. Let him guide you. Because as he does, and he will do this, he will point you to needy people, homeless people, the broken kid, the co-worker whose life is a wreck, the recently divorced, an addict, the frightened parent of a sick child, a person fighting for their life, lonely people, and it goes on and on and on. He will give you the capacity to understand a little more about what people go through. Here's something that I learned a long time ago. You don't know a whole lot about the people you're sitting around right now. You don't know their story. They come in and a lot of them put on very brave faces. You don't know the brokenness inside, how much it hurts. I don't know either, by the way. I don't. And here's something I've learned. That when you make a shift that goes from me to you, you begin to see hurting people differently. And you begin to care more. And you begin to be more like Jesus Christ. I promise you, sitting here right now is somebody who's dying inside. Right now. Somebody's struggling. Hanging on by a thread. And sometimes they come into a church like ours just with a hope that something, some glimmer of hope, a ray of light comes into their darkness right now. And I don't know about you, but I've been there. And I'm not too ashamed to say that. And I want God to take this heart and crucify it so that I can live for Jesus and love people the way he wants me to love them. Not fake, surface, hey, I'll pray for you kind of stuff that a lot of churches do. Genuine love. Something that has compassion that's real. I don't want to be fake. I've had enough with plastic people. And I've had enough with fakeness. I don't want to pretend. I want to be the real deal. And so I'm going to say it to you again. Soul shifts don't happen by happenstance or just because we prayed once and God waved some kind of magic wand. Soul shifts take effort and they're not easy. But here's what we can do. We can begin by crying out to the Lord and telling him the truth. I'm too selfish. I'm too self-aware. I'm too filled with my own pain to be any good until you start to make some fundamental changes in my heart. And I need that, Father. And then he'll lead you. And he'll point you to people that maybe they're even worse off than you are. And he'll break your heart for them. And you'll stop looking so much inwardly. And you'll begin to say, you know what? I've got problems. And I have pain. But there are a whole lot of people in the world who hurt badly. And I can address this. I can give. I can pray. I can comfort. I can be kind. I can say a word. I can care. 
And God can give you that capacity. You may have lost it or you may have never had it. But I'm saying to you, if you want to be who Christ would have you to be, this is a fundamental change, a shift in your soul that needs to occur. You need the heart of Jesus. And so I'm challenging our church. I'm talking a lot to our Christians today. So bear with me as I do that this this summer, as I'm speaking to you Christians, bear with me because I'm, I'm interested in helping Christians become more like Jesus. And we can do this if we're willing to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And I want it. The Bible talks about crucifying ourselves, laying that old man down, if you will, and our carnal nature down. And, and we start thinking about other people for the glory of God. And that's old language. I understand that. That's old-fashioned preaching. But it's the truth still today. And we need to do it. And so the, the question I have for all of us, and let me bring you back to the question that is going to come up throughout this, this whole series. Does God want to change anything in me? Is there something about my life that needs to change? Some of you, honestly, and I don't know who you would be, somebody in here needs to start at, I want to be born again. I want to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. And I want to accept his gift of forgiveness and salvation. I want to start there. You'll never get a soul shift until Christ enters into your heart. You can't. That never happens without God being in there. And so you may need to invite him to wash your sins away and offer yourself to him. But to those of you who are born again and you still know that God's speaking to you about some changes that he wants to make, the second question, am I willing? Am I willing? Will I do what it takes? so that I can become a man or woman of God.